I just, uh, man, I got to tell you, I felt like I'd, I'd entered into a battle, and uh, it, it was ongoing. But I want to share with you, and I'm not, obviously I can't share any of the details, but one of the, one of the joys for me this week was I got to watch uh, several different things happen in the context of this body where people were caring for one another, uh, and it was happening on its own. It wasn't directed by me. It wasn't in, the elders weren't involved. It was body people in this church being the church. And it was so cool to, to sit back and watch God work. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, because if we don't live that way, if that isn't who we become, um, then, then we're just not going to amount to much. And uh, I think God's called us to be more than that. So I just wanted to say I was encouraged, had, had one of those challenging uh, Sunday Mondays. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, but uh, it's probably really not a joke. Uh, but many pastors talk about quitting on Sunday and then starting again on, on Monday or Tuesday whenever they come back into work. And, and there's just something about that process uh, every now and then you, you, you walk away and feel pretty beat up, and, you, and Jerry's laughing because he's like, yep, uh, that happens. I'm excited because in the text this week, you know how the Bible works? We just go from one really challenging week to another week off. I hope you guys are feeling good. I love the passage this week, uh, and, and I'm encouraged because I just love Peter. In, in the process that we're in. Any of you ever found yourself trying to be helpful? Where you see a situation and you want to engage and help? Uh, Don and I kind of have a joke. Uh, we, we will uh, hear things that our brides need and we'll begin to help. And then we realize shortly after that that it's not helpful. And so then we, we were like, I'm helping. That's our thing. And it lightens up the whole mood and our brides typically will laugh. Any of you ever experienced that in life? I'm thinking that Peter might really be feeling that, that process today in the text. Um, I remember as a young man working in uh, a feed store, and uh, I'm dumbfounded now. I look back at my life, and I can't believe I thought I knew as much as I thought I knew. Because I recount things that have come out of my mouth to older people, and I'm like, Oh, did I actually say that? How is that possible? Um, but we were in a, in a, working in this feed warehouse, and I had an older gentleman look at me, and I was young, as you can imagine. I was uh, 16 years old. I started working there. The day I turned 16, I went and got my driver's license and then went to work and started working that morning. And uh, I'm running feed sacks back and forth, and these were the light ones. They were the 50-pounders. So We'd put two of them on our shoulders to try and be cool, and I, which by the way, back at that, when I first started working there, I weighed 95 pounds. I was 16 years old, weighed 95 pounds. I was tiny. All of my boys looked like monsters next to me at that age. I've got 100 pounds on my shoulder, and I'm running feed sacks out, and I'm jumping down off of the dock, which is about three feet off the ground. You know what the old guy said to me? Some of you just nod because you know what he said, right? You know, that's going to end up being a bad idea down the road. 
<laughs> I completely laughed it off. I disregarded him. I looked at him, and I just said, nah, I'm strong. I can handle it. And uh, I got to tell you, that was a bad idea. Because <laughs> at 40-something, I am living with those consequences. You know, there's a lot of different things in our lives where we try and help or we're engaging. We see somebody doing something and we want to promote them or help them. And, and it can be the wrong thing. It can be the right thing at times as well. But Pete today, he runs into the wrong, he's on the wrong side of this discussion. So follow with me, jump in with, with me in Mark chapter 8. As we continue in Jesus' teaching of his disciples... Mark chapter 8, verse 31. We're actually going to do this in a couple of parts, um, so just bear with me. We're going to read actually a, a fairly a larger section today just so that we can get the whole context um, as we continue, and then we'll get through it in the next month or so. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. <clears throat> and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Man, that's going to be exciting, isn't it? Seeing our Savior return. I love the process that we see here. Jesus is continuing to teach the disciples, and clearly as we're moving forward, as he's moving closer to the cross, he begins to speak more plainly. We actually see that in the text. He begins to tell them what's coming and, and instruct them and bring them along, and obviously they're really struggling with this idea, right? But Jesus is, this, is identifying and laying out for them the prophecy that's coming. We've looked at some of the prophecy recently. We're not going to do that as specifically today. Um, but the identity or the specifics of this is that Jesus is going to suffer and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and killed. And after three days, he's going to rise again. Uh, we see that uh, Peter actually it references the specific teaching uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. 
It says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as spiritual houses to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." We see this, the, the challenge in this is that Jesus shows up as this prophesied coming stone, this, this precious and chosen one of God that's supposed to be building up the church and, and creating this house of worship, this holy priesthood that's specifically set apart for the worship of God. And yet in that same prophecy, in that same process of a chosen stone coming, Peter is confer. he's telling us what Jesus told him, that he's going to be rejected. And Peter saw the rejection. He actually lives through this. In our passage in Mark, we actually see Peter not understanding this truth that he writes about later on. But this idea that Jesus must suffer many things and be rejected is hard for them to accept. Wouldn't that be kind of challenging for us? I mean, we're not going to look at that as, a the, as somebody's testimony. Hey, you guys, I'm here to lead you uh, to the coming promise, promise of God. We're going to fulfill all these great things that are happening. I'm God's guy. And by the way, it's going to end with my death. I'll rise again, but it's going to end with my death. Can, I can understand why Pete and the guys would be struggling with this philosophy, right? Especially if our idea of success is always winning. Whoever's in charge is the one that's done the best, right? I mean, that's the culture of, of force that they're used to living in. Whoever has the strongest army is the one that runs everything. Whoever wins all the battles is the winner, You guys, we still live in that world. Even though we give trophies to everyone in certain sports, we all know that it's still second place is still first loser, right? There's none of us that think if our, okay, I'm a dad of four boys. I never once looked at my boys when they, when they were not playing well or they lost a game and said, well done. I didn't. I would tell them I was proud of them for working hard. Now, how can we improve? What can we do better? Why? Because the prize was, was the top shelf. That's where we're going for. I, I honestly think that the disciples are kind of in the same, the same spot. They're like, man, we got, we got the goods. We got Jesus. He's healing people. There's people walking on water. He's bringing people back from the dead. I mean, who wouldn't want to serve a king that could raise you from the dead? That makes war a little less intimidating. I get it. They are looking at this, I think, from a pretty natural perspective. I love the fact that it says in the text that he said this plainly to them. Did you see that? In verse 32, and he said this plainly. I think, I think part of what we're hearing from the, the gospel writer is he wants us to understand that Jesus wasn't talking in riddles or parables here. He was saying this so openly, so forward that they should have gotten it. There wasn't any hidden message here. Just read that again with me. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. 
Any questions? Pretty direct. We, we know that, uh, that this was the, the case because if you look in Luke chapter uh, 24, verses 6 through 9, look at this interaction. Uh, the women have come to... Uh, the women have come to the tomb looking for Jesus, and uh, I'll make sure I'm on the right one. Luke chapter 24, verse 6. There it is. They're in the tomb, and the angels showed up, and they're frightened, and in verse 6, we pick up the, the dialogue. He said, uh, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. This is not something that was not clear to them. It was that they didn't understand it. They, didn't, they weren't listening well. Uh, maybe it's that, that it wasn't their perspective. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. In fact, I think we see this in Peter's response, right? Because uh, in, in verse 32, it says that, uh, and he said to th this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, I want you to, I want you to just take, we're going to take a little side trail here. We're going to do a little rabbit trail in the midst of this process. But I, I think Peter was trying, he's trying to help Jesus with his promotional speaking career, Right? Because if you're trying to get people to follow you and you're trying to build a crowd, you don't tell them that you're going to die. And, and this, I mean, that's just not good policy. You scare the people when you start saying these kind of things. And Peter saw that happen. And he's, I mean, I'm sure he was experiencing that with his own disciples. He's like, Lord, hold on. You, you're doing this all wrong. You're going the wrong direction. This isn't how this works. Peter pulled him aside and began to rebuke him. One of the things, uh, the, the, the rabbit trail we're going to take, I love Peter. He's got leadership 101 down, right? He's going to rebuke the Lord. He takes him aside. He's not doing it in front of everybody. He's going to pull him aside. He's like, hey, we need to talk. It's the important people here in this conversation. I, I was actually just, it just dawned on me as we were singing this morning, doing oceans, Peter's already walked on water. Now, we didn't see that happen in, the, in Mark's text, but we do in the other gospels. Peter's already walked on water with Jesus. He, he's, he's going up in his leadership and in, you know, in his closeness to Jesus' career. And so I, I think that some of that is helping him in uh, motivating him to instruct Jesus, to help him, to rebuke him, to give him some input. But I do think that Peter really handles this well, and he, he pulls him aside. It's always a good idea if you're going to confront the God of the universe to do it privately, I would suggest to you. It's just a good idea, because when he rebukes you, it would be helpful if he did that privately as well. My opinion. Matthew chapter 18, we actually see this principle lived out in the context of the church. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that this is an important rabbit trail for us as we grow and as we work together as a body. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, says this, For if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two other along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, 
Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's super important, I believe, that this is just a basic principle that we should take to heart in how we deal with one another. Peter does a good job. He pulls Jesus aside. I got I to gotta direct you, Lord. You're really scaring the people. We need to redirect how we're doing this. On a side note, and, and this is just write it down in your notes. You can go look it up later. We're not going to look at it today. But Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 23 through 24, talks about this idea that if you are at the altar and you remember that somebody has something against you, leave your gift and go make it right with them. Now, I've grown up in churches where we've done that at communion, but what's really interesting is the altar was the place of worship. It wasn't the Passover specifically. Passover was a very specific thing. Communion is a very specific thing. This verse, Matthew 5, is talking about in the context of our worship. So if you come to worship God and you realize that somebody has something against you, go and make that right. There seems to be a principle here that when there's conflict between brothers and sisters in the church, you can't worship God effectively. We need to take this seriously and deal with our stuff. Rabbit trail over. You guys okay with that? I think it's super important. I think God looks at how we interact together very, very seriously. And we need to look at it similarly. I love in the text, Peter handles it well. He rebukes Jesus. He pulls him aside. He's trying to help him get his career off the ground. You know, if we're going to really take this kingdom to where it could go, Lord, you need to, you need to polish up your speech a little bit. You guys, have, you know that they, we do that, right? Um, I have sat through several speaking classes. In fact, you guys will really appreciate this. I pretty much failed public speaking in the community college that I went to. And uh, it was really awesome because I was doing a, a research and sales pitch, and I was selling uh, homemade diaper wipes. Now, I need to tell you, this, the sales pitch worked good. Several people wanted the recipe for my bride. Um, but where I almost failed was that I just, I didn't follow procedure. I didn't do all of the things that they wanted perfectly. I, I, I barely had an outline, and, and I didn't follow it well. I'm, I'm just a, a wreck, I guess, as a public speaker. And I had that problem in Bible school as well. And so most of my 20-plus years in ministry... I've been encouraged by other people that I really need to go and learn how to speak publicly better. I need to focus on that. And uh, I've gotten a lot of great advice. You guys would be amazed at some of the things that I shouldn't do or suggestions of things that I should do. I really think that, that, was, that that's Peter's intent and he's trying to help. And Jesus is so gracious with him. Uh, my third point this week is that Jesus gently corrects Peter. Don't you think? So he's talking to Pete alone. Did you see in the text? He's talking to Pete alone, and, he, and he, he turns away from Peter. He turns back to his disciples. So now his back's to Pete, and he says, get behind me, Satan. The affectionate words of your rabbi that you just want to hear every week, right? Now, listen, I want to I clarify something in this process. Um, I don't believe that Jesus is calling Peter Satan in the text in, in the sense of saying, hey, you're being 
like Satan at this point. I believe that if we look at the, the context or, or the, the root of the word, it's actually adversary or slanderer. That's, that's the, the, the root of the Greek word here. It is the title that is used for Satan. But I don't believe that Pete is actually, Jesus is actually calling Peter Satan at this point. He's, we would probably be more accurate to say, get behind me, adversary. Get behind me, you're standing, you're opposing me like the devil does, like Satan would. In fact, we're going to look at a contrasting situation where Jesus is actually confronting or he's rebuking the Pharisees. So look in your Bibles in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. It's a little longer passage, but I want you need to see the context in this, I, I believe, and it's important for us to recognize how Jesus is confront, he's actually rebuking Peter. He's he's saying, No, get 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 your get your focus right. Get out of the get out of my way of doing what it is God's called me to do. Look in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my, words find, my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, uh, you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. Did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. Uh, You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. A little stronger language there when he says, you are of your father, the devil. And he begins to, to identify for the, for the Jews here their behavior. He's saying, he's a liar and a murderer. And now you hear truth and you want to kill me. What's that about? He's identifying their actions and he's tying that right to them. I, I believe what we see with Pete, and, and Jesus explains why he says this to him, uh, that, he, that he says, get behind me, don't, don't stand in front of me, don't oppose me. Uh, in verse 33, he says, but turning and seeing his disciples, Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not set in your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, was Peter watching the things of man? 
Absolutely, right? He didn't want Jesus going away. He wanted the kingdom now. They were excited about it. We would be excited about it. Jesus showing up, doing all the miracles, the prophecies being fulfilled, the king has come, Israel's going to be restored, the throne of David reestablished. I mean, that's phenomenal stuff. And for the Jews, it was spectacularly important. Jesus says, your mind's, on the wrong, your mind's on the wrong thing, Pete. You're focused on the wrong thing. You're focused on the things of man. You're focused on the earth. You're focused on the, the physical things here. What's interesting to me is that we don't go a whole lot. There's not a whole lot of more, more dialogue that happens after this, is there? Jesus continues to teach. He, just, he starts teaching and teaching and teaching. And you don't hear Pete's response. You don't hear the engagement. I mean, maybe Pete got wise at that point, didn't say a word. Maybe. I hope so. Well, the question that we have to ask then, man, if Peter's standing with Jesus, being told plainly what's coming, what's happening, what the next, what is going to happen in his life, the process, if his mind's distracted, if he's focused on earthly things, question that I have for us and for me that I, uh, I'm wrestling with and have been this week is what are my, our minds set on? What is our focus? What has our attention, our allegiance, our worry, our, our days, our evenings? I, I told you guys that I, uh, I had a rough, I had a rough w- uh, weekend, right? Mon- Monday, I came in. Julie's like, what's wrong with you? I said, I think I'm tired and grumpy. Yay, God. We had such a What a wonderful spiritual high on Sunday, and then bad attitude. What is that? You know, if Jesus was really all that the Scripture says that he is, wouldn't I be able to look at those things and say, okay, Lord, glory to God? Yeah, I can when I get my eyes off of the earthly things, when I get my eyes focused on the right stuff, off of me, off of the now. Um, how many of you are excited to shovel snow? Can I tell you that a few years back I was? Not, not too long ago, I thought, I, I actually love snow and love shoveling snow. I went out, I, went out, uh, I don't know what day was it, Saturday morning? Um, fired up my snowblower. And this is the worst part. You're not supposed to compare yourself to your neighbors, but they're out running their snowblowers. And their snowblowers are shooting 10 feet out of their thing and running the same wet snow. And I'm running mine, and it's barely getting away from itself. Like, it's just falling off the end, and it's not doing any good. Because now I'm just beating up the snow, making it wetter and heavier, and the next time I come through, it plugs it up. What would a physical focus be at that time? It was. It's exactly what I went and did. But if my eyes are on the things of the earth, on the physical things, I could find myself in a really bad attitude right then about my snowblower and the broken belt that I found. No, it gets way better. My attitude was so much better because I went down to the store and I got a new belt. And I'm putting the new belt on and I thought, you know, I know belts. It feels a little loose. I get... I would have thought it'd be a little harder to get on than this. 
I went out in this stupid thing with a brand new belt and money later and gas and all that, did the same stupid thing. It was just as dead as before I put it on. So I got the wrong size belt. Yay me. Now, you say, what does that have to do with anything, Shane? It has to do with my attitude. Because just two days, three days, four days before that, I'm up front kneeling on my knees saying, God, my life belongs to you. Praise Jesus, I'm going to follow you. This is a new year, and I'm going, to see, I'm going to seek you first. You're going to be the priority in my life. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. What are our minds set on? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of, uh, on the, things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God laws, God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you." As children of the king, we have been given life to live in the midst of our mortal dead bodies. So when I go out and I pick up the shovel that I now have to use, because the snowblower that I'm investing in so that I don't have to use the shovel anymore, requires a little bit of ibuprofen at the end of the night, because my shoulder that has given me problems hurts all night long and I'm laying in bed hurting every time I move, I now can say glory to God. I have that option. You know what really drives me nuts? Is that I have an option. There's times where I'm like, Lord, just take away the flesh. I don't want to, I don't want to, want to be mad or grumpy or frustrated or discouraged or any of those things that come from... The flesh, as it tempts me to keep my eyes focused on earthly things. I, I think probably the biggest challenge for us is that we are flesh, right? So being focused on now is pretty easy. If you, want to, if you want to just do a test to make sure that it works for you, just take a hammer and hit your finger. That'll bring your focus right into, right into perfect focus, right? It, just, it does. We, it's easy for us to be focused here and now. 
And the worst part is, is that when it becomes idolatry, when it becomes a point of worship for us, it can really, really twist us up. I can, I can honestly tell you, I don't know where Peter's heart at was at in this process. Jesus identified that he wasn't focused on the things of God, but he was focused on the things of man, earthly kingdoms, uh, the earthly reign of Christ, his physical body, the, the, the kingdom that was coming. And Jesus' eyes were on the things of God, and he was looking at eternal things and the spiritual victories that were coming, the, the death that we would be set free from, the victory over sin and the grave, and all of those things, Jesus was seeing those things, and he, and he was challenging his disciples to follow him in that. And I, and I think we're challenged likewise. And it requires Romans in us surrendering our body, I believe. Um, but we see in Philippians, we're going to end with two passages in Philippians this morning as we think about what it means to have our eyes on the things of God. Philippians 3, 12 <clears throat> through 19. Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. I believe Paul is challenging us to identify what it is that our, what is our worship, what is our focus, what is it that we have our eyes on. And here he says, I haven't obtained it. I'm not there on my own. It's not, I'm not saying that I'm there, but I know it's so important that I set my eyes on it and I pursue it. In his life, he's made it the one thing that's the most important to him is to pursue this goal, this purpose of being in Christ, and to, to see it fulfilled in his life. And I love how he, how he articulates those that don't do that, those that are, that are missing the mark. They've become enemies of the cross, and their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Here's the challenge. You can read that verse, and I bet you any one of us could probably instantly go to something that we see in the world today, and we're like, that's right. Those heathens, look at them. I think it would be wise for us if Jesus is challenging Peter in his view on where his eyes are at, if he's focused on earthly things instead of the things of God, when he's standing with the Son of God who's instructing them, it would probably be wise for us to consider. What is it that our focus is? What is the most important thing in our life to us today? 
Are there things that we should sacrifice? Are there, thing, are there things that we should let go of, give up, get rid of, that are distracting us from being focused on Christ? To have Him as the pinnacle and, and, and absolute focus of our worship. Paul says that we should look to others, imitate others who we see doing this. I got to be honest, I don't, I don't look around in my life. I, I really haven't identified and said, here's the three people that I'm watching do this. And I'm, man, I got to get closer to them. I, I don't know why. I mean, it's right here. It says that's what we should do, right? I've got to go work on cars. I've got to remodel my house. I've got things to do. I've got, we got a church to run here, people. We don't got time for this. That takes time. And that, that's what Paul is challenging us to do, is go and imitate this. And, and the craziest part is that the example that we see in this particular idea of, of setting everything else aside, forgetting the stuff that's behind us and being focused, laser focused on what God has called us to do is Jesus himself, right? We, we, yeah, yeah, this morning the answer is Jesus. Just think about that. It's actually always Jesus. And I don't know why as a church we're always like, Okay, the right answer is anything but Jesus today. Have, I don't, have you guys ever had that? I've done that as a youth pastor. It's like, the, don't, it's not Jesus today. Give me another, and that's just wrong. But anyway, I'm going back to old days, old things. We have for us an example in Philippians. We're going to stay in Philippians. It's maybe one page back in your Bibles. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. But Jesus is our example in this of setting things aside, and, and what's so crazy is that Jesus set aside something that he wasn't wrong in having. Jesus sets aside something that was rightfully his, that wasn't sin for him, it wasn't a distraction for him, it wasn't wrong for him to have it, but he willingly lays this aside. Look at what the text says, what, what Paul says about the, our example, Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Just let that sink in for a minute. That's the church, right? That's us here. It'd be really cool if everybody did that for me. It'd be tough for me to do that for everybody else, though. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have the capacity to have this focus, not because of us, but because of Christ. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself and became, took on the form of a servant. He put others' interests and needs ahead of his own. He modeled this for us and how we're to live and how we're to, how we're to be Christ followers and have our minds set on the things of God, not the things of man. That's our example. You guys, this is tough. This is hard for me to do. I wake up every day and have this battle. Every day. The things of God are the things of me. Should be the same things of Shane. That would actually be a good movie. We could do that. What am I focused on? What have I set my mind to? What I love about what Paul says in Philippians is that it's, it, I think there's times where we think it's just a random event. We wake up and we're like, uh, what am I thinking about today? Oh, my arm hurts. Thus, I am grumpy. That's not what this is talking about. Pete had set his mind on the things of earth, the things of man. He did not set his mind on the things of God. Paul says, I forget what's behind me, and I set my focus to what it is. I, I strain to lay hold of it. I believe that part of what we need to do is when we wake up in the morning, we should probably get to the point of going, ooh, my arm hurts. But God is still good. God is still on the throne. He's still in charge. And therefore, I can worship Him. Therefore, I can live for Him today. Therefore, I can serve my bride selflessly today because He did it for me. Doesn't that sound awesome? Yay! What are we going to do tomorrow? I want to challenge you. Man, I got beat up last weekend. And like an idiot, I'm laying in bed going, what is this? What is this? Should have had a tissue for all the whining I was doing. Why would we not expect there to be combat when we're trying to change and follow Christ? Why would we not expect in my own heart to to combat that? This means I have to give up me. What does it mean to set my eyes on the things of God? It means I have to get rid of me. I have, to, I have to give up, even feeling good. That's hard to do. I want to challenge you to make an intentional step. Maybe it's this evening, maybe it's in the morning. How would you, like Paul, put whatever it is in your life that's, that, that's holding you or keeping your focus, how would you put that aside tomorrow or this evening and set your focus and strain to take hold of that point of worship in, that, that we are called to be, to strain to take hold of the goal of being like Christ in how we live. For each of us, it would look different. Some of you may need to be, get your Bible out and read all night long so you're not distracted. It's possible. Some of you need, may need to pray, turn off your TVs, not watch the Seahawks game today. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I'm, that, that was kind of a joke. 
That was kind of a joke. But man, if you can't love Jesus in the midst of bad ref calls, you may have a problem. I'm speaking to myself. But what is it that God's called you to be? I think that part of what, what we see Jesus challenging Peter is get your mind on the right stuff. Set your mind on the things that I'm doing. I'm teaching you what the truth is. Now get your head around that. Get your heart focused on that. What does it look like for you and for me to be focused on the goal that God's called us to? Would you, with me this morning, in your own hearts, make a decision about how you're going to pursue that goal tomorrow morning? Or this afternoon, when you find yourself focused and wrapped up in other things. I want to challenge you to do that in the quietness of your heart right now. And I'm going to close in prayer. Father, this morning the, the conviction of my heart is that I am often times more like Peter pre-Holy Spirit than I am like Peter after Holy Spirit. God, I want to live for your glory. I want to live for your purposes. And I'll just share with you openly, Lord, that I think that um, what I've got to do is, is turn off the TV and the, the, the distractions of life sooner at night. I didn't even have to set myself a bedtime. What is that? And then set my clerk, my alarm clock to be up before my life has to get started. To make a commitment to meet with you. I don't know what anybody else needs to do. But I have a lot of distractions in this life. A lot of things that I love and enjoy and am very passionate about. They can sure distract me from doing what you're doing and being about your things. So God, this evening, this afternoon when my arm hurts, I want to give you the glory. This week when I'm battling uh, discouragement, frustration, anger, pride, selfishness, greed, whatever, whatever the, the battle is this week for my heart. I want to give you the glory and put you first. Help me do that. Because ah, I'm weak in my flesh, but your word says I'm alive in Christ. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in me and can give this old, dead flesh life. What a glorious, glorious truth that it is. That God, I am not... I don't have to live in fear because I'm a child of God. I just, I am so, so grateful. I just pray that we would live that truth today. We would live that truth tomorrow. And by your grace and your power, God, we would choose every morning 
to start our day focused on you and return when we see that we're off. God, we give you the glory this morning for all that you're doing. And I just pray that you would do more than what we could think or imagine with the little bit that we bring. In your name, amen.